Good morning. How are we doing? That was a, that was definitely a mixed response. It wasn't uh, it wasn't completely clear. Hold on, I need to find something. You guys hang out here. Oh, don't you just love technology? No, me either. Sometimes, sometimes it works out well. All right. Well. I want to talk about a couple of things, uh, but first thing I want to talk about, I was, I was talking to some friends recently about uh, the misnomers that have floated around Christian circles and uh, even in my own uh, childhood. This idea that once we give our lives to Jesus, uh, everything is smooth sailing. I mean, it's an amazing sales pitch, right? <laughs> Just join the church, accept Jesus into your heart. You get your pew, and all will be well with you, right? That, that's, that's, what I was, that's what I was told. I know it's an oversimplification, oversimplification, but as a young man, that was the crux of what I heard. When I was old enough to leave the church, I did just that. I left because I didn't see the complexity or depth. There was no theology of suffering no room for grieving, no space for the sorrow of this world. But I knew suffering, right? I knew. Uh, I knew sorrow, and I knew grieving. So I went looking for people who were familiar with disappointment. I looked for people who would sit with me in my pain. It wasn't a conscious decision, but looking back, I can see very clearly why I did what I did. I wanted something with substance, and even though the world didn't have the answer, they understood the problem. I think having acquaintances who aren't followers of Jesus can give a great an even greater perspective of the problems of this world. People who are outside our normal Christian bubble can give us a better understanding of the beauty of the gospel. We may not like their solutions, but we dare not dismiss them when they are pointing out the problems. Speaking of the gospel, uh, our reading in Matthew was well known by many of us this morning. We've heard it, some of us, since we were very little. Sometimes as a preacher or a priest, I come to Scripture and I realize that I'm going to need to come up with uh, an understanding of the illustrations. Uh, I have to come up with some applications of the passage. But Jesus does that himself. He interprets here his own parable. He gives illustration. And he gives an application. So what I'm going to do is ask that you put aside your well-rehearsed narratives of this particular parable and join me as we seek the Lord and what he would have us here this morning. If you join me in prayer, Father, we come to you not looking to get anything as much as to give you honor with our lives and to do well with the life that you've given us. Open our ears that we may hear a word from you 
a word of challenge, and a word of comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our gospel reading takes place in, takes us to Matthew 13. A little background with a photo. Yes! A little background with a photo of where this parable take pla- took place. Jesus is understood to be at the Cove of the Sower. You can see Capernaum up there, the Sea of Galilee, right here in the middle of the picture. It's the Cove of the Sower, uh, and it's a natural amphitheater. So, like, when you read, well, I don't know if you do this, but I read scripture, and I, I wonder, like, Jesus, you're talking without a microphone. How is this happening? There are 5,000 people hearing from you. Like, make it make sense. Well, here at this Cove of the Sower, it's actually a natural amphitheater, and it said, I haven't been there yet, but that's one of the, things, one of the places I want to go. It said that you can, if you stand on, uh, if you're there in the water, they can hear you. Like, it's just like a, it's, your voice echoes throughout that space. And, I mean, Jesus knows what he's doing. I mean, like, he knows his creation, so... It's like, I know where to stand to talk to the people. I mean, that's Jesus. All right, so let's get some dirt on our nails with uh, this farming practice in ancient days. Most people didn't own their own property that they farmed. It was temporarily assigned, so without fencing, there would be packed earth paths between the plots that were marked by large rocks or trees or some other landmark. There would be a well-worn path. If the seed lands there, it's easy picking for the birds. After harvest, the fields were burned, animals were brought in to eat whatever remained, and they would leave their dung uh, to be baked into the ground to mix with the ash for fertilizer. You imagine the ground cracking under the heat. It's an arid place. But when it rains, it rains. About the same amount of rain falls in Jerusalem as in London. But it only happens, it happens all at once in Jerusalem, right? Two consecutive seasons back to back. Um, It's called the former and the latter rain. You may have heard this terminology before. After that, it's just drought. The ground in some places is littered with rocks, and they let them stay because having those rocks there create these pools of water, and the rocks themselves create shadows or shade so the water doesn't evaporate, so they don't remove the rocks. They scatter the seeds first, then with the animals, they plow the fields. So the soil is mixed with the seed, quite unlike how we do farming today. Now we plow the fields first and then we lay the seed afterwards. The the ground also has some thorns and weeds that are mixed in. So since the soil is mixed with all kinds of things, the harvest was an intense time. You've probably heard some other passage about the the, the weeds growing up with the, the, the wheat growing up with the the wheat and the tares, right? You've heard that. This is why. Of course, there were patches of good soil that had little to no obstruction to the harvest being plentiful. 
Because of the fluidity of the rainy season versus dry season, it was important to plant during the rainy season to get a harvest. If I were going to preach a second sermon, I would preach about that. It was important to plant during the rainy season because there was a dry season coming. All right, that's, that's all right. I'm... Do I say that again? It was, an, it was important to plant during the rainy season because there was a drought. All right. Since this is an agrarian culture, farmers who are familiar with sowing seeds will note that Jesus is speaking right to where people are. He is contextualizing his gospel, the gospel, the good news. He's contextualizing this message, and yet they still struggle to understand. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. We who have ears, what do we do with them? I think... Let's do this. Let's look at, at seven points that are lifted from our text this morning. Here are the first three. The seed is the word of God, and the sower is Jesus or us, his representatives. It's pretty simple. We get to be the seed. Number two, the different soils represent the different kinds of hearts that people can have. Number three, the one who snatches away the seed is the enemy of our soul, the devil. Number four, the packed earth or the path is a hard heart that hears but refuses to let God's word enter. Number five. The rocky soil represents those who hear God's word but don't continue when hard times and persecutions come. Number six, the weedy soil. That's interesting, the weedy soil. Represents people who allow the worries of life and the pursuits of wealth to choke out God's word and they wither up and die. The last soil that produces a harvest, represents believers who preserve, persevere in their faith and induce, in doing so produce fruit. I, I think the above list is easy for us to access, right? Uh, many of us have heard this list before, and all of these soils resonate with each one of us at different times. At different times, any of our hearts are... Are hard, And even though some of the things of God are shut out, when our hearts are hard towards God, our hearts may be open and pliable to other things. So my heart may be hard toward God, but it doesn't mean it's hard toward everything. There are other things that are actually coming in and have access. And when that happens, we're looking for love in, thank you, all the wrong places. We begin to idol worship in ways that look practical. It becomes a systematic plug and play 
activities that we just do. We're going through the motions, but our hearts are not in it and are not bent toward God. At other, t- other times, our hearts are rocky, there's some soil, perhaps very little, and we get excited for about three minutes. And that's because our skin is thin, but our hearts are hard. And in response to being mocked, we fold like the laundry that's still waiting to be done. We shelve it and put our faith away and just go along with the flow for fear of rocking the boat. And sometimes we start to show some growth, marginal perhaps. We think we're getting it. And we start the new year with a reading plan or a plan to pray. Anyone here start start a reading plan with the Bible and then peter out after about a little bit? I'm just checking. It's just I'm, I'm waiting. Uh, this whole section over here is super holy. I appreciate that. If you need some prayer... Or we think about signing up for a mission trip, right? But the worries of being successful, the pursuit of happiness, overrides our presentation of of God's love toward others. And so we are fruitless. I'm thinking about Father Matt's sermon from last week, right? When I'm rushing around, how do I share God's love with other people? How do I treat other people when I'm in a hurry? What kind of person am I to others? This slide here, Mark Moore put it this way in the Chronicles. Not that one, the next one. That was a good picture, though. I like that one. This is a good one. Mark Moore puts it this way in the Chronicle Life of Christ. It was one of the books from when I was in school. Essentially, the soil is the same. The difference is what is added to the soil. Weed, seed, Rocks or a good trampling? How do these differences come about? Through hearing. Not the simple physiological performance of the ears, but the humble acceptance of the heart. The word of God must be obeyed and not just heard. In fact, in the Hebrew culture, to hear also implies obedience. The soil is potentially good in each human heart. The difference is the will. This is the meaning of the idiomatic phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. To continue on with this agricultural theme, how do we cultivate good soil or a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? Or how do we use our ears to hear? I would posit that it takes faith, a faith that heals. It takes faith that Jesus has us to be vulnerable enough in community. And it takes being in a community that understands and has made room for those who are hurting. It takes a community that will welcome people with rocky hearts or hearts that are stuck in the weeds and meet them with peace. 
It takes us willingly submitting one to another, choosing vulnerability, choosing a willingness, choosing to, 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 cha to be challenged and to move from being a student to a practitioner of love. Move from being a disciple to an apostle. While a disciple is a student, one who learns from a teacher, an apostle is sent to deliver those teachings to others. Apostle means messenger. He who was sent. So apostle is sent to deliver or spread those teachings to others. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes 12.12. He says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. One more book study. And then I'll go do it. Let me read a little more, and maybe then I'll go and practice. I just need, just I, someone else wrote a book, but let me read this book. Is there a book on this? Of book study, there is no end. But before we can do that, before we can be an apostle, apostle we have to be Coachable, coachable. One of our first foster boys, I'm just going to call him Kenny. There were five boys, and my job at that time, I was a young Christian, and my job at that time was to uh, be a relief house parent. So there's a house, there were boys that lived there, there were parents, but they needed a break. Five teenage boys. So I would go in on Sunday, Sunday morning, and I would leave Tuesday night. And so I would be with them that entire time. That entire time. <laughs> so Kenny, he was one of the boys, and he was in the system. And, and he was with us because of parental neglect and, ex and experienced some pretty severe mishandling, mishandlings by the adults in his life. The, thing, uh, the things that I, I won't go into detail about, but they were pretty severe. And those things could easily make a heart turn cold. It could make a heart become stone, non-pliable. A fear of being disappointed again would, would make sense, considering his childhood trauma. But to my surprise, I, I, I would take him to school uh, and he would stay after for basketball practice, and I would pick him up. Uh, sometimes I would watch the practice. Other times I would go to a coffee shop or um, go shoe shopping. Whatever. Don't judge me. Um, <laughs> but one day, I go to pick him up, and he says to me, Herb, that's what he called me, um, he said, the coach said something about me, and I'm not sure what to do with it. And I was like, well, what did he say? He said, Kenny? You're coachable. And I remember being just blown away at that time, like, that's a compliment. For a coach to say that to you, to say that you're coachable. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty 
and in another and in another 30. Does God say that about us? We ask ourselves, are we coachable? Or have we become so hard of heart that your word cannot penetrate into our hearts? What cares of the world have so consumed us that we are ambivalent to the pain around us and ambivalent to the pain that's actually still inside of us? The work of the gospel is as much bearing faithful witness to the brokenness of the world as it is celebrating with joy the risen Christ. What we have to offer the world is being a people of peace in the midst of the storms of life. We have that in increasing measure as we experience that Jesus is reliable to us as a person of peace in our own storms. What we have to offer is love for our enemies even when we've been persecuted. We at one time were enemies of God ourselves and yet he loves us. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What we have to offer the world is self-control when our emotions want us to lose our ever-loving minds over the latest political controversy. And I want you to know that I lose my ever-loving mind over the political drivel that happens. And I'm missing it. I'm missing being able to offer the world peace. I'm missing the, the opportunity to offer the world self-control because I get excited about, what, did he just really say that? Did she really, does she know what that means? And my fingers go really fast, and I start to type stuff, and the Lord says, what are you doing? I'm like, okay, backspace, backspace, backspace. <laughs> delete, 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 delete. Thumbs up. That's what you get. That's what you get. Here's a deal. Healed people heal people. Jesus says to us, go make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. When you experience healing, are you walking other people towards the healer? What has Jesus taught you that you are now teaching other people? Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. In this world you will have trouble. Why is it that we do everything we can to avoid trouble? Jesus guarantees it, we are going to experience some drama because we follow him, not because we're, can I say idiots? I'm going to say it. Not because we're idiots, but because we're putting him first, people are not going to like us. Because we said yes to him, we are saying no to other things, other paths, other choices. 
I was talking to a guy earlier this week, and we were talking about the well, political dribble. There you go. We were talking about uh, what was happening in Jerusalem with Hamas in Israel. And he started to get emotional, and I almost joined him. And then I said, how does the gospel inform our response? And I was like, ooh, that had to come from God. That was not inside of me. That was Jesus in that response. That wasn't my answer. But I have to ask, I have to ask myself that question. Not the Old Testament, but the New Testament, the gospel. How does the gospel inform our response to what's going on in the world? And if we are not filtering our response to the gospel, then the best that people are going to get is our brokenness. Take heart, I've overcome the world. That's also a promise. It's a tragedy when we have not taken heart. It is painful for us, and we miss the blessing of being persecuted and still standing. We miss the experience of the foretaste of heaven, and our lives are just simply living hells. We miss being able to dance in the rain or sleep in a boat during a violent storm. We miss learning, like Jesus did, obedience through suffering. I want to close with this prayer. It's from a book called Black Liturgies by Cole Arthur Riley. It's up on the screen if you want to take a snapshot of it, or you can go buy the book, because there are lots of books out there. <laughs> After you take the picture, if you want to take the picture, I'm going to ask that you close your eyes. I'm going to leave this up here in case you don't want to close your eyes, because, you know, free will. But I'm going to read this prayer, and I want, as I'm reading the prayer, that you would translate my voice into your voice as we pray to God. Yeah? This prayer is called, For Those Who Have Forgotten How to Cry. God of the unmoved. Move our spirits, whether out of trauma or pride, some of us have left our emotions in the past or have turned against them altogether. We feel safe in our stoicism, protected from looking the fool, from the risk of doubling the pain by recognizing it. Remind us of the beauty and necessity in our tears. Bring into focus our child selves that wailed without shame. Remind us that our need is not a nuisance. We've grown callous from the overwhelming helplessness of mass information. 
call us back into a wholeness and a nuance that honor the dignity of the world without and with, sorry, with mourning. Soften our hearts to tragedy, even our own. Bring us into proximity with the wisely vulnerable, that they may teach us true courage. And give us aids in our anguish to journey with us in and out of sorrow. Grant us ears to hear our own grief and to welcome it into our body as a friend once lost, found again. In Jesus' name. Amen.